pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hola, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today might be the world's foremost expert on all things pig-related, especially bacon. British-born chef, classically trained in the culinary arts program in Bristol, he worked in multiple Michelin star and fine dining restaurants from England to California, where he makes his home today. In 2011, after 25 years in the business, he decided to launch Baker's Bacon, where his passion for working with his hands, sourcing the best ingredients, and making food with care serves him well. Tony Baker, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thank you very much. Uh, honored and flattered to be on here, to be honest. This is great. Before we start, this one's going to be the two most important questions. Have you ever been to Portugal? <laughs> I have not, but it's definitely on the list. You know, As a good British person, you know, you have not been to Portugal. I know, I have not been to Portugal. Do you know any Portuguese words? Um, not ones that I should repeat on, uh, on a podcast, <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know how to say bacon in Portuguese? I'll teach you that one. Oh. Bacon. Okay, go for it. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. That's it. It's like banana. I'm going to apologize. <laughs> Growing up, any inspirations in the kitchen? Family member that was a great cook? Uh, you know, being British, the uh, Sunday roasts, you know, mom, mom was always a good cook, good home cook. We never shied from a real meal. We were a traditional family. Every Sunday sat down, my sister, mom and dad for a, a home cooked meal. My dad even liked to cook. He got big into the traditional uh, English foods. We would do pig's trotters and some stuff out of the box at home and just experiment a lot. So that was good. And then I was in the Boy Scouts and had a scoutmaster. Actually, it was a scoutmaster's dad. It was an old army cook. And I would help him during fundraising events, cook thousands of donuts and uh, do a lot of baking. A lot of, a lot of, uh, learned a lot about, um, about dough with him. So that was, uh, and I was young. I was shoot i don't know 12 13 years old so just uh, 10, 10 years ago yeah. <laughs> yeah something like that for sunday roast do you do you guys do the yorkshire pudding for sunday roast or the only for special occasions the yorkshire pudding only with beef you know only with beef anytime where anytime it's roast beef you got to have yorkshire pudding yeah are you one yeah. of those people that's like kind of like fills the the yorkshire pudding with everything a little bit of everything a little bit of mash a little bit of peas or no not really but saying that when I remember Montreal, uh, when we got our wood burning oven for the first time, I was playing around with cast iron skillets and doing Yorkshire pudding batter in there. And I did a lot of employee meals. Of, uh, I had a bunch of cast iron skillets in the wood, wood burning oven, and I would do all kinds of Yorkshire pudding stuffed with various things. And staff seemed to dig it. So, yeah. Okay, perfect. But at uh, home, no, just traditional. Okay. U usual muffin tin. If I got some good animal fat, throw that in there and just a, just a good solid Yorkshire pudding. Do you raise pigs? No, nope, I wish I did. No. What are your sources and how are they superior from your normal sources would be? Well, we did start out when we when we first started it was we were we were quite small and um, we were able to source a lot of local pork which was fantastic. So we were getting some some pork out of Marin in California. One of the drawbacks of getting a larger and scaling up is uh, source. So but I don't believe we've compromised. We were buying sort uh, pork from several family farms in Iowa. We have very specific criteria, antibiotic-free, vegetarian. Uh, we use three different heritage breeds, Doroc, Hampshire, and Berkshire. 
Um, they're all well raised. Uh, one of our suppliers is GAP, Global Animal Projects Level 3 certified. Uh, but essentially, all of the sources we get our pork from are match the most of the criteria for GAP, which is which is good. So real pork is very, very important. And you notice, chefs notice right away. I get chefs, I'll bring slab bacon into a restaurant and they'll just shave some of the fat off and just eat it in a roll. And that's how you can tell when you get a good pig when the fat's delicious and, uh, and it's dense and firm. Is that maybe one, your dream one day, have your little pig farm? You know, to do what we do, it would be very challenging, but uh, I wouldn't mind having uh, some land. That's the goal of my wife and I to own sort of 10, 15 acres. It'd be fun to have a have a, a few pigs in, uh, in, the, in the backyard. That, that would be that's definitely a goal, yeah, absolutely. Could you explain, so I've tried your product, and one of the things in the U.S., and in Portugal, for instance, bacon is not a big thing. People eat, but it's not exactly a, a huge thing in Portugal. But sometimes in the grocery stores, you'll see bacon. A lot of people associate that. It has a lot of water in, and also it has, it's very, it has a lot of fat, but it necessarily doesn't mean it's a good thing. There's barely any meat, and you're just eating fats, which I guess it's fine if you want your cholesterol to go high up, but you want to have a little bit of meat as well, right? You want to have a little bit of bite that the rice becomes, I don't know, a little bit weird. What are the differences between a good bacon and a bad bacon? You know, you, you mentioned the fat to lean ratio. There's there, too much of either is not a good thing. Uh, bacon that is too lean is also not a good thing. You want um, you want a good balance of, uh, of fat to lean uh, in your in your belly. Um, I specifically source fairly small bellies as much as possible. Though it's very difficult in the in in the heritage hog ABF world because they don't spec things as, as closely as they do in the commodity world. But um, one of our biggest difference, and you hit on it with the water and, and the moisture, is that we dry cure. So only about 2% of bacon produced in the US is actually dry cured. So that's significant. Most commodity bacon is produced in about a day you know, made one day, shipped the next. Uh, our product takes uh, close to two weeks to make. You know, we're we're, cure, we're dry curing. Um, it takes time, and uh, and then it goes through a natural smoke process, which is also longer than most. And then we also have a sous vide bacon. That's uh, as far as I know. We're still the only nationally distributed sous vide bacon out there, and that in of itself is is really cool. And chefs are doing all kinds of really cool creative things. Uh, with the sous vide bacon, which is fantastic. And can you explain, you just started a little bit, but can you explain a little bit the process, like you said, dry cured? How do you do it? You know, basically you have a big piece of the belly, right? So just for people to understand very quickly, how would you, what's the process to make bacon? Yeah, so um, our bacon, traditional bacon, you take um, your ingredients, sugar, salt. We do use uh, pink salt or sodium nitrate which, uh, you know, our product was made for chefs, not really the retail market uh, initially. And uh, chefs don't seem to mind uh, pink salt. It makes, for me, when we were developing the recipe, the quality of the product we got using pink salt versus uh, celery powder um, or the celery slime as they, they have, was just far better, far superior. It's, it's a much tastier product. Even the uncured, no nitrate bacon's loaded with nitrates. So, where the nitrates come from, you know, I don't think chefs, it's not an issue. Most high end restaurants got a bag of pink salt on the shelf for their terrines and their, and their charcuterie anyway. So, the first ingredient mostly on most commodity bacon is going to be water. Ours isn't. We just literally take the salt, sodium nitrate, spices, and uh, sugar, and we, we literally 
put it on the, the bellies and rub them and lay them in a combo bin uh, for eight days. And uh, they just sit there. And then the process is the, the bellies come out, they go into a bacon comb, which is a stainless steel, looks like a comb with the prongs about one inch apart on a bacon comb hung on a bacon tree. And then they get a bit of a rinse with uh, just cold water to rinse off any excess salt and the dry cure. And then they go into smoke. Not what some people expect. Some people expect this big giant, um, you know, woody smoke shack, you know, with bellows of smoke coming out of a chimney on top. Uh, a modern smokehouse is far different than that these days. Um, it's a stainless steel giant oven, essentially. So you have a heat source, which is typically, uh, in our case, gas burners uh, with tubes coming out throughout the smokehouse. And then you have the smoke source, which is a smoke generator. You take big giant bags of uh, wood chips, almost looks like a very coarse sawdust. Uh, we wet them down with a hose and then shovel the wood chips into the smoke generator. And then that pumps bellows huge amounts of smoke into the smokehouse. So you have total control of the smoke. It has uh, a fan assist and these uh, these baffles uh, that open and close. And so you have uh, very, very strict control of the temperature inside the smokehouse and the amount of smoke you're, you're bringing in. So, and then in terms of smoke exiting the building, that's uh, an interesting one. Why you don't see smoke coming out because of the um, strict California emissions laws. We have um, an electrostatic precipitator, which actually cleans the, the smoke that's leaving the building. And uh, you just end up with these giant bags of what looks like uh, buckets of like black tar is quite uh, quite gross. Uh, it's it's quite a process, and um, it scrubs the air, and you can literally breathe that air coming out of that machine, leaving the smokehouse. So pretty pretty fascinating stuff. So being English, yes, probably brings you some memories, right? Bacon. Are there any big differences between English bacon and American bacon? So when I first came to the U.S., I always thought it was strange how there was no back bacon in America. And that was always kind of floating around in the back of my mind, if ever I had the opportunity to make back bacon and, and bring that commercially. There's a couple of very small producers doing back bacon, and um, it's just like a two-inch uh, two inch lip on loin. So I wanted to do the traditional long back, which I grew up with, which is the, the, the eye of the loin with the entire belly still connected. And I wanted to do it dry cured and uh, a, a lighter smoke. So we started down that path and we bought some pigs in California. We worked with um, a butcher shop in Oakland, actually a meat processor and we got this custom cut pinned down and we started making a really amazing traditional dry cured long back bacon and each rasher was probably 16 inches long and it was just fantastic it was an amazing product but oh my goodness it was so expensive to produce because we were using a custom cut of pork we were dry curing so we're losing weight there instead of adding with water and it made, you know, so I was selling to restaurants a wholesale bacon that was like $13, $14 a pound. Yeah. So they were going like, this is still pork, right? It's still bacon. Why am I paying $13, $14 a pound? So needless to say, the uh, uh, the business model on that one was not exactly sustainable. It cost so much to produce. We sold very little. Um, so I ended up having to basically being forced to drop it because we were just losing so much money trying to produce this amazing product. And some chefs were just really gutted when we stopped making it. The ones that were prepared to spend the money, they saw the value in, in what we had. So now we do what, honestly, when even when you go to England anymore, the back bacon has changed, uh, mostly because of economics and, and palates and what people want. And there, even in England now, you go to a supermarket and it's almost all they're using two-inch lip-on loins, which is a standard cut. 
and that way they can use the belly and then they can use the loins. That's what we've switched to. And because it's just a loin, we're actually using that uh, uncured technique now for that, which actually serves that, that product really well. So, you know, there's times and places where a wet brine is, uh, is a good, good thing. And that's one of them on our back bacon. So you end up with a really moist um, and just a, a quick sear on the back bacon is delicious. It makes the best bacon sandwich. And aside from sort of the traditional the traditional English style bacon uh, and English breakfast. There's lots of great versatile um, things you can do with the back bacon. We see chefs buying it in slab form and shaving it and using it on bennies and and, and things like that. Um, so it's a relatively new product for us again. So um, we've just kind of relaunched the back bacon. So we'll see how that how that goes. And it's very good, yeah. And you will have the back bacon has way more meat and fat ratio, right? That's correct. Yeah, since it's using the loin, you can just imagine sort of a boneless pork chop, really. Yeah. Um, that's that's the cut for people that are not familiar with that. And we actually will cut it, you know, three quarters of an inch thick and call it a bacon chop. And guests are buying those and just putting them on the grill and really enjoying that. So um, we sell that a lot in our in our butcher shop here in Marina, California, and people are loving it. We were talking about the bad bacon earlier. What shortcuts do producers take that results in bad bacon? And how can people, in some way, spot that if they try to buy that at a grocery store? Yes, yeah, so it's very difficult because even if you go to a health food store, if you like, an upscale upscale market, for example, some of our biggest named uh, uh, grocery stores will sell product that is labeled uncured all natural and if you were to read the bold print you think oh my goodness this has got to be the best thing i can buy the best best thing for me uh with some pretty pretty big brand names but the realities are you can take a um, pork belly and you can bathe it in um you can wet brine it uh, which is in, they call it inject injecting or needling where they literally dock it with needles and pump about 20% brine solution into it um, using the celery powder technique. And then you can bathe it in liquid smoke and then you can put it in an atomized steam smokehouse where you're not actually burning wood, but you're just blasting it with um, uh, liquid smoke that's atomized in steam and sell that the very next day and call that all natural bacon. So pretty gross when you think about it. You're pumping it with this brown slime, you're leaving it set for maybe an hour, and then you're putting it into a steam steam room with some uh, brown smoke. And because liquid smoke is actually derived naturally, they can still call it natural. Uh, but it's a very different process, obviously, and a different product. And, and uh, it's very hard to spot from a consumer. And USDA regulations state that when you're using the celery nitrate, nitrates occurring from celery, that you have to label things in such a way that's that's consistent across all brands. So you don't really get, as a, as a producer, you don't get much say in how you label your product. It, it kind of is dictated to you by USDA, even the font size, very strict. Do you believe more people will go away from the big grocery stores, industrial type of product, and will seek more artisanal, small business-oriented products, even if that costs a little bit more? I think that real food, as I call it, is it's not a trend. You know, it's not something that's uh, going to disappear in a couple of years. It's uh, it's definitely a movement, and people are expecting to know more about where their food comes from and uh, want high-quality ingredients. And our little butcher shop here in Marina is an example of that. I mean, um, we're, we're using 
super premium ingredients local where where possible and customers are coming in and paying a small fortune for some of these items but they they cost that so yes it is unfortunate that there is such disparity in a lot of these things between and in price luckily our bacon we're able to uh, able to make it at a fairly affordable price and the difference the, the cost difference for chefs is really not that much especially right now with the with the market being so high on commodity pork um, that uh, the numbers are kind of leveling out a little bit so there's really not a huge disparity in price so I, I really encourage especially chefs that are listening and the uh, check out Baker's Bacon and do a comparison between um, what they're currently using maybe a commodity product and you can get into something that is uh, a lot more responsibly raised for little money because bad bacon we're talking it's not cheap you know bacon's not exactly yeah. when you go to the grocery store you can buy easily for i mean i live in dc six seven eight dollars which is not you know exactly a, a super cheap but you can buy very good bacon for eight nine dollars and Absolutely. Right, so in that in that case, the difference between bad bacon to good bacon, it sometimes people just have to spend a couple, you know, a couple of dollars more, and you'll see the difference. And and people all can also not just chefs, but everyone can order from your website as well. So that's correct. Yeah. So we do have um, that's kind of one of our COVID pivots. We've got several COVID pivots, and one of them was adding um, direct to consumer sales with uh, an in person store, and then also a website. So we have a a subscription program which is currently uh, just includes the western states we can ship nas uh, nationally all over the country uh, on the subscription boxes if they pay shipping um, and we have um, we have pretty good rates so I encourage people to go check it out online and uh, we we send uh, we send bacon to DC we send it all over the country <laughs> that's true so you work in the restaurant business for many many years and then you decide to create your company in 2011. Why that decision to leave? And do you miss at all being back in the restaurants? Earlier in my career, I think most chefs will understand that it's a pretty physically demanding job. I saw a lot of my chef friends that were starting to get uh, older, really struggling, uh, working the demanding uh, lifestyle. It's not just about standing on your feet, working expo or working the kitchen and running up and down stairs and so forth, but it's just the whole lifestyle of working nights and weekends and holidays and everything else. And I kind of committed to myself earlier on in my career that by age 50, I want to be out of the kitchen and not necessarily out of food, but I just want to be out of the kitchen. And um, an opportunity arose back in 2011 to, uh, with, with bacon. And I've got a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I've done a few other things throughout my, my career. And uh, this bacon opportunity popped up and it just started very organically and very slowly, but it evolved. And uh, right before COVID, actually, uh, New Year's Eve, which was our busiest night of the year always at my restaurant, I hung up, hung up the toque and called it a day and focused 100% on Baker's Bacon. Maybe not the best time in the world, maybe the best timing in the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i think it worked out at the end i mean it's been a been a challenging year but um it's been fun kind of reinventing things and uh working we've done a lot of things to 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 work around covid and so forth to to, to keep my people employed and and also grow the business at a yep. fairly young business at that we really only started baker's bacon full-on about two years ago okay. even though i started in 2011 technically um it was very very small and very very local and very uh very organic growth so shifting the conversation a little bit here uh, tony i want you to imagine an island do you have an island that you really like the sure 
Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, an yeah. island. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm in, I'm in the Bahamas. Okay. Okay, there you go. So it the whole island is just for you and your loved ones. Okay. You can take one protein, which I'm sure I probably know which one you're taking, but one protein, <laughs> one veggie, one fruit, and one dessert. What do you take? Goodness me. One so veggie. The protein... I think we can assume. All right, let's, let's stick with pork, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, the okay. veggie. Um, mm-hmm. You know what? I'm, I'm English. There is only one vegetable that you can live on forever and eat every day. That's a potato, of course. <laughs> yeah. And the, the uh, fruit? The fruit, probably the most one versatile, probably an orange. It's boring, but, you know, a damn good orange. And, orange and is not orange. boring. It's good. Yeah, that's fine. And the dessert? Um, dessert. Summer berry pie. Have you ever had uh, like a, a summer pudding? Yeah. So we take the, the bread and slice it and soak it in the berry juice and then macerate all your berries and pack it. Uh, yeah, summer okay. pudding. What was your first memory of taste? Ooh, first memory of taste. I don't know if I can go back that far. My goodness me. <laughs> I, I will say with, with taste real quickly – COVID has been very interesting with regards to taste. You get used to eating your own food. And once we started going out to restaurants again and, and exploring, it was like all, my, all of a sudden my palate reawoke and became so alive. And um, so I think uh, hopefully people experience that same thing when starting to get back out and eat again. But yeah, I, I was one of those kids that was very, very sensitive to bitter. So I think Brussels sprouts as a kid was one of my worst memories of taste. But <laughs> Once coming into the industry, understanding and learning about palate and taste and, and how super tasters and so forth work, you kind of understand, understand that, that better. So that was a, a distinct memory, though, of my dad forcing me to eat those damn Brussels sprouts as a kid. Now I love them, of course. <laughs> the most underrated ingredient for you? Most underrated ingredient. I, I can't say bacon, of course. I thought you were going to say bacon. Um, you can say bacon, of course you can. Okay, bacon. You generally believe that. Of course you can. <laughs> Under, most underrated ingredient. Liver. Cobb's liver. I love cobb's liver, and it's just really hard to find anymore. It used to be much more prevalent 20 years ago, and um, it's, uh, it's delicious. Awful in general. I mean, people in America especially really struggle with awful, and even sourcing good awful is challenging. Overrated ingredient. I get shot by some people for saying this. Caviar. I enjoy it, but do I want to pay... What it costs? No, probably not. The best breakfast you can have. Oh, full English. Yeah, I mean, I just, a real good full I mean, English. I mean, like proper black pudding, real back bacon, like a really good full English breakfast. Beans, everything, Hands right? Beans. Tomato, grilled tomato. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Heinz beans. There's only one. There's only one. Heinz yeah. baked beans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, yeah. What is the strangest combination food-wise when people put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept? And here. I can even give you a little bit of a adding question or maybe ingredients that you've seen people pairing with bacon that you're like, don't do that. So you have two options to answer here or both. Uh, I'm not a mushroom seafood guy. That makes me cringe when I see um, mushrooms and seafood dishes. You got a nice delicate piece of fish. Uh, I truffle oil, pet peeve of mine, fake truffle oil is created from chemicals and it's overused and and you know there's a time and place for you know i grew up in fine dining where we had real truffles <laughs> and uh amazing 
truffle, and so the, the, the overuse of truffle oil is obnoxious. And uh, you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to put truffle oil anywhere near bacon. <laughs> Chocolate and bacon, is that okay with you? Because people do that. I'm okay with that. Hell yeah. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. The name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those actually are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Certainly in the food industry, you're always, always, always learning. So um, uh, while I may have plenty of experience, I'm far from far from done. Um, so I'm certainly uh, breaking dishes. At the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish. Here, I should say sell your meat, but, you know, sell your fish. In Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself. So basically, know where people can find you, where people can order. If there's anything in the future that you can reveal, what's next for the company, just just sell your fish a little bit or your bacon, literally. Okay. Let's sell, sell, our, sell our fish. Um, bakersbacon.com for all the folks that want to get really high-quality bacon delivered to your door. Something interesting that we're doing, um, sales has been a real challenge in the food service world. And so getting into chef's kitchens and in-person meetings. So now as we're kind of going into sort of this post-COVID era, my wife and my dog Porky are about to head out on May 1st for around the country van life tour to all of our distributors around the country and hopefully as many in-person meetings with chefs as possible with some pop-ups and some bacon tastings and so forth. We've purchased a 4x4 Sprinter van RV and it's going to be decked out with all the bacon regalia and um, getting some camp chef gear on the back and uh, a system to set up uh, cooking bacon and we're going to go and hit the streets. So uh, beats flying and doing the airport thing that I used to do so much. And um, I think this is uh, just a, a way for me to have fun and adventure with my wife and my dog at the same time, getting out and meeting chefs and, and sales reps and, and having a good time introducing Baker's bacon to uh, the food service world. And when, when this journey will start? Uh, we're going to go May 1st to the end of July. So three, three months. Perfect. So, okay. Uh, yeah, three months. If you see us out there, be sure to uh, give us a, a honk, a holler, a wave, and uh, if, we, if you have the opportunity, stop us for a chat. And you never know, you might get some free bacon out of it. <laughs> well, Tony, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. One uh, question I didn't so ask bad. you, forgot, the last time you ate bacon. The last time I ate bacon? Yeah. Well, I came to work yesterday morning, and I was craving a bacon English bacon sandwich. We had, I got some bread rolls from an Ad Astra Bakery, a local bakery, very small. They were delicious. And uh, I managed to cram about eight slices of back bacon in <laughs> between those two pieces of bread. And some just uh, some butter from our local dairy. Stunning. It's as simple as it is. Butter. HP, HP sauce or no? I did have HP, but I didn't put it on the on my bacon sandwich yesterday. Okay. But I, I've always got HP line because I know you love that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to be in DC, by the way, uh, with our van. Uh, okay. We're going to drive all the way to the East Coast, and so uh, Chef, uh, uh, I'll see you there. And another probably six eight weeks, we'll be um, kicking around uh, DC. So I'll, I'll be sure to reach out. Okay, perfect. Tony, have a great day in California, and I will see you in six weeks. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great one. Good day. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Tony, for coming on the podcast. For the listeners, I have a bacon joke for you. Are you ready? It's really bad. What do you call a bacon-wrapped dinosaur? Jurassic pork. Anyway, don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. 
You can follow the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you send me an email with suggestions, guests, or just saying how awesome this joke was, you can send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, and also if you want to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins. I will see you next Wednesday. Be safe, be happy, adios.